Father, above all things, you have exalted your name. You are exalted in holiness. We look up and worship. We stand in awe, mouths gaping open, for we have never seen beauty like this. It is impossible to behold such exalted beauty and leave unaffected. We have your word open before our waiting hearts. O oh, lover of our souls, we want to know you, but our coward hearts fear to give up their toys. We cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And we do not try to hide from you the terror of parting. Let us not only speak the word sin, but see the thing itself. We confess our crucified, but never fully mortified sinfulness. Our desires hinge on and hunt for man's approval. We confess our irritableness. Our irritableness doesn't comprehend your sovereignty. Help us to stop making excuses for our sin. A fountain of pollution is buried within our nature. God, that's why we cling to the cross that you planted in the earth. The cross still stands and meets our need in the deepest straits of the soul. Give us a deeper repentance, a horror for sin, a disgust at its sight, a dread as it approaches. Today, would you plow 1 Corinthians 15 deep in us? Oh, heavenly husbandman, fatherly farmer, grace-filled gardener, may our souls be a tilled field where roots of grace can spread far and wide. Produce golden beauty like summer harvest. Grant fruitfulness as autumn plenty. We need 1 Corinthians 15 to be pressed deeply into the soil of our heart. Do it for your own glory. And this local church is good. Amen. I give you today from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11... The gospel. We have prayed the gospel. We have sung the gospel. Now we will preach the gospel. To those of you who are non-Christians, I am not hiding my intentions. I intend for you who are rejecting this gospel to embrace it and be saved. By the help of the Holy Spirit, I am fully expecting that for those of you who are cloudy on the gospel, it will suddenly by the Spirit's working, become clear to you. Then the gospel obligations become clear to you. To those of you who are Christians, I intend to spread a table where you can feast on the gospel. I intend to take you to the ocean where you can swim in the gospel and never plunge its depths. I want you to leave saying, that's the best food I've ever tasted. And my, my, I've never imagined it had such glorious depths. There are four movements in the text. The gospel is needed, verses 1 and 2. The gospel is theological, verses 3 and 4. The gospel is historical, verses 5 through 8. The gospel is personal, verses 9 through 11. The gospel is needed. 
The gospel is theological. The gospel is historical. The gospel is personal. As we walk through these divisions, I will drip gospel principles throughout. Eight of them in total. We will take them as they come. But first, we must see the gospel is needed. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. Paul preached this gospel to them three to five years ago. He spent 18 months preaching this glorious gospel while founding the church. Paul's church planning strategy? It's complicated. Preach the gospel. The gospel has requirements. The gospel makes demands on your life. You are required to receive it and to stand in it. Received, that's past tense. Stand, that's present tense. Past and present requirements. There seems to be even a gentle rebuke here. They needed reminding. Like they had forgotten or looked over the gospel. You do not exhaust salvation by the experience when you first believe. We need to be reminded of this gospel over and over. We need this gospel preached to us again and again. We need to receive this gospel through and through. We need to stand in this gospel day after day. The needs just keep coming in verse 2. And by which you are being saved. Let's pause here. We need to realize the gospel is saving us. We are being saved. Present and future. Present process and future reality. Verse 2 continues. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We need to hold fast to this gospel. This is not something to hold lightly. You hold it tightly. If you do not hold fast to the gospel, it is not saving you. The only saving faith is a persevering faith. Holding tightly faith. Hold fast. This is the same verb used in the Greek and other places to designate perseverance. Obedience and continued faithfulness mark the redeemed. Paul is always preaching to his people perseverance. Tom Schreiner says, Paul never views faith as a static reality that cancels out the need for present and future faith. We are reminded of the parable of the soils when those on rocky ground believe for a while, but when testing comes, they fall away. They refuse to hold fast. There is a time element here. We have to wait it out with some folks, wait it out with some soils. Here's what Paul is saying. Don't take it for granted that you've got it. We need to make sure we are not believing this gospel, as Paul says, in vain. He adds a qualifying phrase, a caveat, explicitly warning them. Those who confess Christ do not always live up to that confession. 
For those who accepted the gospel in hasty fashion without due deliberation of the facts believed in vain. They haphazardly believed the gospel but did not consider its demands. They had a temporary faith, not a saving faith. This text is not teaching that you can fall from grace. It is teaching that you can fake grace. This is not a warning that a Christian can lose their salvation, but a warning that the wrong faith will not save you. Their faith is vain, groundless, empty, smoke. If any of you think you have believed in vain, we would love to speak with you. To speak to you about a faith that lasts. You must understand, this is not genuine faith that dies out. This is not real faith that loses its energy. This is vain from the beginning, empty from the beginning. A truly regenerate person cannot lose his or her salvation. Here's why. Those who hold firmly do so because they are held firmly. God holds you fast, which enables you to hold the gospel fast. He holds you tightly, which enables you to hold the gospel tightly. The gospel is needed. You need to be reminded of this gospel over and over. You need this gospel preached to you again and again. You need to receive this gospel through and through. You need to stand in this gospel day after day. You need to realize this gospel is saving you moment by moment. You need to hold fast to this gospel till your dying day. You need to make sure you're not believing the gospel, as Paul says, in vain. The gospel is needed, verses 1 through 2. The gospel is theological, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is not just important. It is of first importance. It, it wasn't just something in the bag of goodies that Paul delivered to the church at Corinth. It was the first thing he pulled out. In fact, it was the entire bag of goodies. Paul says, I placed before you what was emphatically placed before me. In other words, Paul didn't invent this gospel. This gospel was pre-Pauline. This gospel is old. Older than Paul. This gospel didn't originate from the heart of Paul. It originated from the heart of God. This gospel is pre-earth. Pre-garden. Pre-dirt. Pre-snakes. This gospel is pre-Satan. The gospel is as old as God. The gospel happened that day on the cross and that day of the resurrection, but the gospel was birthed in the heart of God in eternity past. Like a baton, Paul received it and then passes it on to them. His statement reflects a passing of tradition, passing of the gospel message. This is something that can be passed down the line. 
The first truth Paul passed was Christ's death. The Old Testament predicted Christ's death. We should speak of Christ's death often because it is the second word in the gospel. First word, Christ. Second word, died. There have been many deaths in the history of humankind. All those deaths can never step on the same playing field with Jesus' death. There was purpose behind his death. A motivation behind the cross. He died, what does the verse say? For. He died for. For. Jesus' death actually accomplished something. He died for sins. He had no sins of his own to die for. He died for our sins. Do you know what you need to be saved from? Your sins. This passage assumes that we all have sins. And Christ's death does something to fix sins. The gospel doesn't tell you something to do. The gospel tells you something that was done for you. Jesus' death, the cross of Christ, was the site of a glorious transaction between the Father and the Son. I want to teach you a theological term. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's our first gospel principle. Christ's death was a penal substitutionary atonement. Christ's death was a penal substitutionary atonement. One three-letter word gives us this doctrine. The word for. F-O-R. It means that Jesus Christ on the cross took the full punishment, penal, that we deserve for our sins. He took it all as a substitute. He satisfied the Father's just and holy wrath against the sinner. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. <laughs> Better news doesn't exist. John Stott said, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You must see Jesus there dying for you. Being a Christian is not watching Jesus die for others. Being a Christian is watching Jesus die for you. The very righteousness God expects from us is the very righteousness he supplied for us in Christ. Jesus imputed to us righteousness. Imputed. You probably didn't use that word this morning. Son, let me impute some jelly on that toast. Let me transfer this grape jelly onto your burnt toast. Jesus imputed his righteousness to us. Let me transfer my perfect, sinless life from this human jar to your human jar. His righteousness is yours by faith. The text says Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. 
Paul doesn't say which scripture passage he has in mind. Is it Isaiah 53? He could be referring to a variety of other Old Testament texts. I tend to think Paul refers to the general flow of scripture. All of the Old Testament together. The, the general flow reveals Christ's death was according to God's redemptive plan. No one reading the Old Testament should have been surprised that the Messiah was ordained to die. These events were planned by God. Christ's death was not an unforeseen twist of fate, but a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why include burial? It's already been stated Jesus died. Seems like burial is a given. It reads redundant, unnecessary, unneeded information, and over-explanation. But Paul doesn't see it as unneeded or redundant, or too small a detail to include at all. Burial bears witness to the truthfulness of dying. It demonstrates the undeniable reality. Burial was more important to the first century reader than it is to us. 750 years before Jesus' body lay in the grave, it was prophesied he would be in that grave. Isaiah 53, 9. He was buried. He was raised. Jesus' heart stopped beating he stopped breathing. Life left him. Then the Father gave life back to him. The resurrection was not God's response to an unfortunate event that happened to Jesus. It was planned. The resurrection is part of the gospel. There is no gospel without the resurrection. The cross is the payment. The empty tomb is the proof. The payment was approved and accepted. Jesus was buried, then he was raised. How fast in space and time? The third day. Three days. The day in which he was put to death, the day following, and the day of his resurrection. Now, he could have done it in three seconds, three weeks, three months, three seasons. Why three days? Did the father say, it will take me three days to get him going again. But eventually I'll have him alive. I'd say you should come back in mm, three days. Is that it? It is three days worth of work before you pick it up at the mechanic shop? Some contest that where it says he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, that according to the scripture applies to the buried and raised part, not the three days part. And I'm not so sure about that. Hosea 6, 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. There seems to be a pattern of God delivering on the third day. Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus compared his three days in the grave with Jonah's three days in the well. It was the third day, and it was a day to be remembered. Raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures.
Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are facts. These facts can be stated, but their meaning must be interpreted by Scripture. If you want to know the meaning, you must go to the Scriptures. The word Scripture here implies a, a canon in the sense of a defined body of text. There were groups of there was a group of texts referred to as the Old Testament Scriptures. The, the Scriptures bear witness to the body of truth called the Scriptures. In it, you will discover the theological meaning and purpose of this gospel. The second gospel principle. The gospel in a nutshell is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel in a nutshell is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 3 and 4, this is where Paul reveals what the gospel is. The essence of the gospel. The perfect, compact gospel in a nutshell. If you had 30 seconds to share the gospel, how would you unpack it? Only time for an elevator pitch. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some will still leave this service and people will ask them, hey, what is the gospel? And they will give some crazy answer about it's the Bible or it's Jesus' life or it's good teaching or some answer that doesn't mention Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Then the person posing that question to them will wonder in his mind, does Kyle even preach the gospel over there at FFC? Can you answer the question, what is the gospel. And that leads us to our third gospel principle. Christians should memorize this inspired gospel creed. Christians should memorize this inspired gospel creed. The church had scripture. And then they had certain pithy little statements they would memorize them and quote them together. Many scholars have noted that verses 3 and 4 take the form of an early creed. The gospel in a nutshell was stock terminology in New Testament times. Almost catechism-like. It, it, it's a very creedal type statement. It, it was a very early Christian confession. It was written this way to remind them succinctly of what they believe. Hey, let's codify the gospel. They liked the ease with which it could be passed along. They found it important to be able to rehearse the elements of the gospel over and over. Paul writes this letter in the 50s, around 20 years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So for 20 years, they were memorizing and quoting this creed. Some of you, you, you like to memorize things and you like to work to memorize the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Before we learn any of the other creeds, we need to memorize the inspired creed. So that's the gospel. Now the obligation of the gospel must be pressed on people. You must repent and believe. But the obligations of the gospel are not synonymous with the gospel. The fourth gospel principle. The gospel is always under siege and must always be defended. 
The gospel is always under siege and must always be defended. If we get the gospel wrong, we have nothing on which to build the church. Paul's command to hold fast to it and stand in it means it's possible for the gospel to be corrupted. Paul warns them not to deviate from the gospel. The the gospel event was 2,000 years ago and 6,000 miles away. That's a lot of time and a lot of distance where it can be perverted. There can be no saving faith apart from the facts of the gospel. We must be clear on the facts of the gospel. I spoke to you in our gospel welcome about how I think the gospel is under siege in the states and American evangelicalism, the whole lordship controversy. Charles Ryrie and DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, they didn't help in that. The gospel is always under attack. It it must always be defended. And you say, Kyle, maybe you're just always looking for a fight. No, I tell you who's always looking for a fight. Satan. He wants this gospel destroyed or distorted or neglected or misunderstood. So let me give you some ways we can distort the gospel. We break the gospel when we only make it about brokenness. We break the gospel when we only make it about brokenness. Our fundamental problem is not brokenness. Our fundamental problem is sin. And they are not the same thing. Stop getting your gospel from Caleb and get it from the Bible. It's not wrong to talk about brokenness. But using it as a synonym for sin is a dangerous pattern to fall into. One theologian said, when you talk about brokenness, the focus of the attention is always on you. What is wrong with me? I need to be fixed. But my deepest problem isn't ultimately that I need some help sorting myself out. My deepest problem is that I stand before a God, a holy God, guilty. That's our real issue. Sin isn't just brokenness or dysfunction. Sin is guilt in the sight of a holy God who stands in reference to us and and in relationship to us as a judge. We break the gospel when we only make it about brokenness. We fail to accurately proclaim the gospel when we only make it about living. We fail to accurately proclaim the gospel when we only make it about living. Francis of Assisi's famous adage, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That brother must have been smoking something when he made that statement. (laughs) That is terrible theology. He certainly wasn't getting that from 1 Corinthians 15. You can't preach the gospel unless you open your mouth and communicate in words. Paul didn't say, watch me, watch me. He said, hear me, hear me. It is a verbal message that he received and then delivered. It is a message, it is a word, it is a body of truth that must be believed, not just lived. And I am all about living out the implications of the gospel. But I want to make it clear, the gospel is not its implications. The gospel is what the gospel is. 
and it's a message. The gospel is needed, verses 1 and 2. The gospel is theological, verses 3 and 4. The gospel is historical, verses 5 through 8. Historical. Jesus vacated a tomb in the Middle East historically. These resurrection accounts are objective, recorded, factual. Paul is laying out an apologetic, and it's a strong one. He catalogs a series of appearances of the resurrected Christ. He's he's presenting an indisputable fact of history. The gospel is anchored in historical events. We have confirmation through witnesses. Verse 5. And that he, that's the resurrected Christ, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The word appeared is a technical term. Jesus wasn't translucent. This was not a hologram. Jesus appeared in his resurrected body. He appeared to Peter the denier. The man who at Jesus' trial denied he knew Christ. The body Peter denied knowing was the same body that appeared to him on the beach. Jesus Christ appeared to the denier, then to the twelve deserters. Now, note, Paul does not say to the eleven. We know Judas wasn't among the twelve here because he was dead by then. Matthias wasn't added to the twelve until after Jesus' ascension, so it appears this is a stock phrase referring to Jesus' inner circle, the the twelve, or rather the eleven, who deserted him. Verse 6. Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Paul continues to tally the resurrection appearances. Seen by his friends in verse 5. Seen by his flock in verse 6. Paul is confirming the tradition's veracity. An array of witnesses can testify to this, both individuals and larger groups. This is too big and too strange to possibly pull off as a hoax. 500 rational people do not hallucinate the same thing at the same time. The gospel is historical and it takes place in real time and space. Paul attests the credibility of the resurrection by providing testimonies. Go to these people and interview them. Some are sleeping. That doesn't mean snoring. They were dead. Paul records this two decades after it happened. Other than... James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the twelve, killed by Herod, and some of the 500 who had since died, it seems that all those listed by Paul were still living and testifying to Jesus' resurrection 20 years later. It shows the confidence Paul had to appeal to their testimony. Hundreds of witnesses, go ask them. They live in that town, walk on that street. And this tells us that Jesus wasn't in hiding after his resurrection. He wasn't in some bunker. He didn't spend those 40 days inside. He met people. And it was widely known that this man that was dead and buried is now walking around. Jesus was scheduling lunch appointments, teaching and preaching crowds, being interviewed by the local newspaper. He has a full calendar after the resurrection. He provided a 40-day opportunity for people to verify his resurrection from the dead. 
is still open for verifiability at the time of Paul's writing. And he dared people to go talk to the witnesses. Too many have seen the risen Christ for the story to be fabricated. Seen by his friends in verse 5. Seen by his flock in verse 6. Seen by his family in verse 7a. Then he appeared to James. This was the half-brother of Jesus. He was younger. Joseph and Mary had him after the Holy Spirit put Jesus in the womb of the virgin mother. Jesus' brother James never accepted him as the son of God. He never accepted his, virgin, his mother's virgin birth. I don't know what he thought about his mother, but he certainly didn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and virgin born. At the cross, there was no record of James saying, Duh! Don't do this to my brother. Only the mother Mary said that. Only the mother believed. Jesus said on the cross, here is my mother. He did not say, here is my brother, because he wasn't there. I can understand James not feeling comfortable worshiping his big brother. If your brother told you he was God in the flesh, would you believe him? James grew up embarrassed of his brother. Embarrassed of his ridiculous claims. Somewhere after the resurrection, Jesus met James and said, I love you, James. I died for you, James. I came back from the grave for you, James. James, stop rejecting me as Savior. I am your brother in the flesh, but I am your Savior in the Spirit. There was not a bigger skeptic in the world than Jesus' half-brother James. But something happened that turned a skeptic into a believer. What was it? A resurrection appearance. James later went on to become a pastor. He was leader of the church in Jerusalem. He preached his brother as savior. <laughs> you're, uh, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus was my half-brother. Mary and Joseph are my biological parents. I lived with Jesus and missed that he was the Savior. See how close you can get and still reject him? But I repented of my skepticism and my sin, and I believed on Jesus after seeing him resurrected from the dead. I can just hear him saying, he's no longer my brother. Now he's my Lord. James said that until his very last words when he was stoned to death for preaching his brother as Messiah. Some of you non-Christians, you pride yourself in, on being skeptical, on doubting everything. But you can't get away from this. Something happened that made cowardly people brave. Something that made skeptical people believe. Something that gave guilty people hope. Something that made mothers and children bravely face death in the lion's den together with joy. What was it? The first-hand experience of seeing the resurrected Christ. There is no plausible motivation for all these people to lie. When you propagate something you know is a lie, it's usually to gain something monetary or, or political power. It brought none of that for this crowd. Only persecution and poverty pain and death 
seen by his friends in verse 5, seen by his flock in verse 6, seen by his family in verse 7a, seen by his supernaturally empowered followers in verse 7b. Then to all the apostles. All these men, initially 12, others added later, were gifted supernaturally, empowered to preach and perform miracles to validate the message they carried. Paul stacks up proof after proof. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. <laughs> seen by his friends in verse 5, the, the denier and the 12 deserters. Seen by his flock in verse 6, the living and the sleeping. Seen by his family in verse 7a. Seen by his supernaturally empowered followers in verse 7b. Seen by his foe in verse 8. Who is his foe? Well, he's the preemie and the persecutor. It's Paul. He's both a preemie and a persecutor. I'll unpack that for you in a moment. First, let's look at all the resurrection appearances together. Paul seems to order them chronologically. He is listing them in chronological sequence. Paul uses time words throughout his list of appearances. He gives an appearance and follows it with 6a, the word then... He gives another appearance and follows it with uh, verse 7a, the word then. He gives another appearance and follows that with the words last of all. This means Paul was the last person to see the resurrected Christ. This also restricts the appearances to a specific period of time. It makes clear that others should not expect such an event. We can further conclude Christ came to Paul after his ascension into heaven. All the other appearances took place in that 40-day window between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, but not Paul's. It was not only post-resurrection, but post-ascension. Why take time to present all these witnesses? What is Paul doing the fifth gospel principle. The whole of the New Testament faith and teaching orbits around the resurrection. The whole of New Testament faith and teaching orbits around the resurrection. Paul gives witness statements. He's proving the historicity of the resurrection. One commentator said, there is more evidence of the resurrection of Christ than there is for the conquest of Britain by Julius Caesar. And this is not an exhaustive list. Paul doesn't list everyone. No women are listed on his list. We know from Luke's account, women saw him. Here's why Paul went through the trouble. There is no salvation without bodily resurrection. B.B. Warfield said, The resurrection is the cardinal doctrine of, all, of our system. And all other doctrines hang from it. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, we can pack up and go home. No resurrection, no church. There is no salvation if Jesus is still in the grave. If Jesus did not live past the grave, we are wasting our time. If Jesus is some Jimmy Hoffa, buried somewhere but no one can find him, then Christianity falls apart. One Oxford scholar says that both of these things, 
The empty tomb and the eyewitnesses are crucial parts of the testimony. If we only had an empty tomb but no eyewitnesses, critics would have concluded that the body was stolen. If there were only eyewitnesses but no empty tomb, they would have concluded that the witnesses were deluded or hallucinating. But the two together make for convincing evidence. End quote. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's not another self-proclaimed Messiah. If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Non-Christian, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. That's the rub. That's why you must consider this matter. Christian, what is the most important thing you know? The resurrection. Your gospel presentation must proclaim the resurrection. You jettison the resurrection, you jettison the Christian faith. You cannot be a Christian and deny the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a fundamental component of the gospel. I told you the last resurrection appearance happened to the foe, the enemy, Paul. Paul was both a preemie and a persecutor. Let me show you the preemie part here and the persecutor part in a bit. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born. That word untimely born points to a premature birth. A child born before its time. One who is unable to sustain life of his own volition. All the result of an untimely birth. Paul says he came too late to be one of the twelve. He's unformed. It's fitting that I bring up the rear. I don't deserve to be included in the inner circle. They spend a, they spend a lot of time with the Lord. Paul didn't. He's a Johnny-come-lately apostle, not one of the originals. The abnormality of his birth is emphasized. The gospel is needed, one and two. The gospel is theological, three and four. The gospel is historical, five through eight. The gospel is personal, nine through 11. This section will answer the questions, who does the gospel save? And can I trust the gospel? Verse 9. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He, he of all people called to be an apostle? Paul's self-abasement is sincere. He's the runt of the litter. Such a wretched specimen. The transparency and honesty of Paul is both heartwarming and breathtaking. Paul the preemie, now Paul the persecutor. Paul participated in public executions of Christians. He was the keeper of the coats as they stoned men, women, and children. He was obsessed with the destruction of Christians. He couldn't stop talking about it. It was a demonic obsession. His devastating honesty shocks us. He beat them until they bled. He can still see the blood on the children's faces that he caused. He still remembers those little bodies lying on the ground. He gags as he thinks about what he did to men and their wives. He murdered Christians. 
He believed they were a contagion that needed to be eradicated. How Hitler felt about the Jews, Paul felt about Christians. He was the ultimate anti-apostle. He tried to stamp Christians out of existence. On one occasion, on the Damascus Road, Paul was on the way to beat more men, women, and children. Heading into town to persecute Christians when Jesus appeared to him. You'll have to read the account for yourself, Acts 9, it's powerful. But Paul didn't arrive at the truth. The truth arrived at Paul. Paul was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for him. When Paul wanted to arrest Christians, he was arrested by Christ. Suddenly, Paul becomes Jesus' greatest evangelist. He once sought to destroy the faith, now all he could think about was advancing the faith. He was once the anti-apostle, but he became the famed apostle. He had given his life to destroy the church. Now he is giving his life to expand the church. <laughs> what a dramatic redirection of energy. Paul was zealous for shedding blood. Now he is zealous for shed blood. He was saved, born again, justified, regenerated, adopted, all in the middle of the road. I was converted in the middle of a bathroom. God can convert people in the middle of wherever he wants. Which leads to our sixth gospel principle. Do you preach a gospel that can convert a terrorist? Do you preach a gospel that can convert a terrorist? That's exactly what happened. God saved the first century Hitler. God saved the, the 21st century Osama bin Laden. The, those that rail against Christianity, God can save them. Paul is the most unlikely convert to Christianity. If you made a list of the hardest cases to crack, the, the, the last people you think would become Christians, Paul would be on that list. Have any of you read after Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book entitled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She would have been on that hard cases list as well. She was a leftist lesbian professor at Syracuse University who despised Christians. From her own lips, she found Christians to be difficult, sour, fearful, intellectually unengaged people. She was the biggest supporter of LGBT causes you could find. She firmly believed Christianity was threatening, dangerous, and irrational. She started researching Christianity to criticize it and disprove it, reading through the Bible over and over and over again. At a dinner gathering that her and her lesbian lover were hosting, her transgendered friend Jay cornered her in the kitchen. Jay was biologically a male, but took enough feminine hormones to be considered chemically castrated. Jay put his large hand on Rosaria's and warned, this Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. With tremors, she whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and he is the risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Transgender Jay responded, Oh, I know it's true. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I just wouldn't submit to it. 
Jay said, Rosaria, if this is the path you're going to take, I will give you my old books. The box of books came and Rosaria pulled out the first book. It was Calvin's Institutes. She opened it up to Romans 1 and in the margin, by the exegesis of Romans 1, Jay wrote a little note. Be careful. This is where you will fall. I'll let Rosaria pick up the story from here. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover. And an hour later, I sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. <laughs> Can you imagine? In the parking lot, a car with gay and lesbian bumper stickers. In the pew, a sinner redeemed by a powerful gospel. Someone asked her later, how has your conversion to Christianity been received by your former colleagues? She responded, when a person comes to Christ and repents of sin, this turning around makes enemies out of former allies. And while this aftershock eventually led to Bible studies and many opportunities to share the gospel, it also destroyed friendships and allegiances. And she said this, the exclusivity of Christ has rugged consequences. Paul says, I murdered Christians, then became one. Rosaria, I despise Christians, then somehow I became one. I'll quote Rosaria once more. I walked into a church that wasn't disgusted with a person like me. They wanted to reach me. May God give us many Pauls, many Rosarias at FFC. I don't have to look at Paul or Rosaria to know God saved some hard cases. All I have to do is look at some of you. It's important we get the gospel right because this, this is the only gospel that can convert people like you. When God saves a Paul, when God saves a Rosaria, this is God saying to Satan, I can plunder your fortress whenever I feel like it. You non-Christian, you mock us, you mock the gospel, you mock preachers of the gospel, you mock Jesus, but God can bring you to your knees. He can make you worship him. He'll make you beg him to save you. You can't fight him. You can't run from him. You can't hate him. Because he will make you love him. I told you a bit ago this section answers the question, who does the gospel save? It can save anyone. When I'm up here, I never preach and think, man, if I get a tight enough argument, I can convince them to believe. No, I am fully aware it takes the breath of God to awaken men and women who are dead in their sin. But friend, when you are awakened, you are a new creature. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. What, you did what, Paul? I worked. What did you do, Paul? I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul's sin, verse 9, Paul, God's grace, verse 10. By God's grace, Paul is an apostle and has lived up to his calling. I am what I am by the gracious choice and activity of God. God's grace toward Paul was not in vain. We know that grace worked because it made Paul work. We are saved unto works. A lazy man hasn't yet grasped the gospel. The gospel does not excuse you from your labors. The gospel propels you to labor. Augustine called Paul the athlete for Christ. Why train so hard? I didn't receive God's grace in vain. Paul worked harder than all the other apostles. More than any of them individually and more than all of them put together. He covered a wider territory than the other apostles. It said he traveled over 10,000 miles by foot. The word work in the Greek means to labor to the point of weariness. The gospel propels you to work until you are weary. Don't get it twisted. Paul didn't labor to receive grace. He received grace and that propelled him to labor. Now, personal testimony, I was lazy before Christ redeemed me. I was. Ask my family, my mom, my dad, stepdad, brother, all who are not Christians, they will tell you. I had no motivation until God redeemed me. And then I can't explain it. I was suddenly motivated to work. This is what the gospel does. And the pendulum has completely swung in American evangelicalism where now hardworking is, oh, I bet you idolize work. Let me give you this book about idolizing work. No, grace propels you to work hard, even to outwork people. My profs always told me, Kyle, ministry is a good place for lazy people to hide. And I thought, that shouldn't be. Kevin DeYoung said, Paul possesses spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Effort. God is not judging Paul on the basis of his performance. Paul is, is not revealing to us his fruitless attempts to pay God back. No, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In this verse, there is an assertion, 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 concession. No, but the grace of God. It's a, it's a counterbalancing statement. This drive, this energy came from God's grace, not Paul's own resources. He's not an egotist who enjoys bragging. The focus is not on self-accomplishment. He freely ascribes everything he has done to the grace of God. This is not synergism. We work alongside God. This is not monergism. God does all the work and we do nothing. Just let go and let God. No, theologian John Barclay calls this energism. God works within us by transforming our agency. 
It was not in cooperation with the grace of God. It was by the grace of God. Paul knew the only source that could produce these good works was the grace of God. Guilt didn't drive him to work. Grace did. The seventh gospel principle. Remember who you were before Christ, but don't allow Satan to rub your nose in it. I bet Paul had nightmares. I bet he dreamed about the faces of those people he killed. I bet his brain was a bit broken. All the time seeing himself do things in the present that he used to do in the past. He probably fought that his whole life. (laughs) PTSD. Paul lived with that before it was a thing. This passage reveals there wasn't a day Paul didn't think about his previous life. His unworthiness. His position was utterly wretched before God. He possessed a deep recognition of his sin. It's hard to be arrogant when you see what you were apart from Christ. He had to constantly think about his worst sin, his worst mistake, and remind himself that that was placed on Jesus at the cross. Jesus died for my sin. Penal substitutionary atonement was something he had to preach to himself over and over and over again. Verse 11. Whether then it was I, Paul speaking, or they, so we preach and so you believed. I like that. So whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The container that gives the gospel is not primary. The message is primary. Paul ties his message directly to that preached by other apostles. Christian, is what you are communicating the same as apostolic doctrine? Our final and last gospel principle, the eighth. The resources in the gospel are sufficient to sustain you through every challenge, hurt, and temptation you face. The resources in the gospel are sufficient to sustain you through every challenge, hurt, and temptation you face. If God's power is sufficient enough to bring Jesus out of the grave, then God's power is sufficient to bring you through hurts and disappointments. Your relationship with God doesn't depend on how you feel about yourself. Your relationship with God doesn't depend on how you feel about your progress in the Christian life. Your relationship with God at any given moment depends on the resurrection. Circling back around, can you trust the gospel? You can. Let's pray together. Father, this has been a glorious 11 verses to walk through. Our sin has been put on display. But so has your grace. So has your gospel. And we praise you for this. Father, as we sing, would you clothe our words in the righteousness of Christ? For we believe in the gospel. Amen.